0: Hey Billy, I'm wondering, have you been looking for a way to get better as a coach? Uh, always. That's good because you could do it by using GMS Plus. It's a great resource for courses, drills, stats, videos, tips, and much more. Many of the game's winningest coaches and players, including Heather Olmstead, Keegan Cook, John Sparra, Mike Wall, and Courtney Thompson, have used it or are a part of it. They're also actually have been former guests, so you know they're good. Personally, I've learned a lot from Gold Medal Squared, as have many of our guests. So, If you're looking to win a state championship or an Olympic gold medal, GMS Plus will help you get there. Get 20% off an annual subscription today. Go to goldmedalsquared.com backslash C-Y-B-O and enter C-Y-B-O. That's goldmedalsquared.com slash C-Y-B-O and enter coupon code C-Y-B-O.
1: Welcome to Coach Your Brains Out, the show that explores learning from the top minds in volleyball and beyond with your hosts, John Mayer, Billy Allen, Andrew Fuller, and Nils Nielsen. Cool. Well, we want to move into coach development, which is your current role as a coach developer. Um, What do you look for and focus on when evaluating coaches? See, the the funny thing is, I think that um,
2: I'd rather... Can see it as case conceptualization than I would about than I would evaluating somebody so I, I wouldn't be arriving with a set of criteria that goes uh, good bad good bad good bad right um do do more of the good do less of the bad I'll see you in three weeks it's uh, it's more about for me is understanding the the full um the full circumstance that a coach is operating in understanding um their decision-making process, understanding the extent of their uh, the, the interpersonal dimensions of the way that they work, and really trying to embed myself in what's going on for them. And from that point, uh, working together to consider how we can um, improve their practice. Now, um, it might sound like I'm dodging the question, but that's, that's genuinely the way that I try to work. Um, and I suppose I have the privilege of working with some very good coaches and uh, in, I don't see a template anywhere for um, for identifying what really good coaching is.
1: So do you see any um, generalities that are like, this makes effective coaches, These all these coaches have, uh, I like, guess, this common trait or is it all still a case by case basis?
2: I think there are a number of patterns of thinking that you can probably say these are going to be useful for a good coach. At the same time, I mean, much like I've I've been uh, harping on about all the way through this conversation, I still think there's exceptions to this. I think that really good coaches are often arch experimenters. They will try things. They will test them and they will find a way to see if that worked based on their intentions I think that very good coaches often are incredibly clear with what they are trying to achieve. And that forms the basis for those micro mini experiments, if you like. I also think there are patterns of thinking that go, uh, I'm searching for something new. I'm always on the lookout for new knowledge, whether that's technical, tactical, uh, pedagogical and I'm winnowing what I get uh, based on those experiments. I'm testing new ideas all the time. That doesn't necessarily mean searching out academic knowledge of which I wish there was more high quality academic knowledge that could really uh, impact on coaches. Um, But I think you typically see that process in in the very best. I also am drawn to, um, it's, this is certainly not my idea, it's Gary Klein's idea, that how do you identify uh, an expert Well, you ask them about the last mistake that they made? And uh, they will talk you through it in really significant depth because they've thought about it so much. And, 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 uh, and as a result, it, that probably is a demonstration of that experimental reflection process uh, going on. And I think that that probably, for me, is the best example of moving... You know, when you, when you see your, your typical coach education course that says, right, uh, reflective practice, module three, I think it probably is a little bit more than that.
0: Mm-hmm. That's, that's a, I like that example of the thinking about the last mistake, uh, an expert coach would be all of it. Um, what about um, kind of the other side? What are some common missteps that you see when you're observing, helping coaches develop? What would be some things that you, yeah, I guess, want to make changes to or, or what, I guess more so the missteps they've made?
2: Um, I, I think there are, there are two, two things probably, two key areas. And these are pretty big and broad and they certainly don't apply to every coach. One, I think, is hiding from um, what uh, peer-reviewed empirical uh, evidence can offer them. Um, uh, in fact, sorry, hiding from is the, is the wrong idea thinking that it's not for them thinking that right i don't uh, this is too highfalutin for me i don't i can't get anywhere near that i think that that really holds them back individually and it holds back the profession
0: hmm. how much um, of that and, do you put on coaches or the communication of academics or is it i guess two-way street probably
2: two complete two two-way street mm-hmm. um I think it's, for me, it's less about the communication of findings. It's more, uh, is this applied? Does this really matter? And look, I really appreciated your comment at the start because I really try to make sure that my work, I live my work and I, um, I apply my work and I hope that what I research and what I do makes a difference. I think if we live in that world, less so the production of papers for peer review alone and for other academics to cite. I think that's far more like, that's far more likely to enable coaches to go, all right, okay, I get that. I see how desirable difficulties becomes a fundamental element of my practice. I see how it's been tested here, and this is God this is robust. I need to take notice of this um, and on the flip side, I think that coaches often talk themselves down both as a profession, that is we are only coaches mm. And I'm sure that uh, and I have this conversation a lot of the time that the coaches fundamentally changed the course of my life. Um, mm. And uh, set, set me a very high bar for what I try to do in my career. Um, and coaches have more impact on my life than a lot of other people who, uh, who, um, who, who with me. So why do we set ourselves a low bar and why do we think that, all um, uh, oh, right, well, it's just big, long words. Somebody needs to simplify it for me. Well, it, it offers practical relevance or it doesn't. And that's the bit that we've got to get better at.
0: Right. Yeah, I love that idea of um, showing respect for the importance of, of the profession. I think it shows respect if, if you are diving into academic literature. I'm curious if you have um, ways or other um, suggestions on how people can get to the accessible stuff um, and kind of bridge that gap between the academic world and the coaching world. Is there places they can go um, we don't all have you like observing our practices, who can like help stuff, you know, break stuff down for us. I don't know, Do you have any advice there? Sorry, if I may, I might return to your previous question
2: as well because I, do, I want to make sure that sure. I'm not. Um, yep. The uh, the bit the other bit I emphasise there is that I think uh, that academia often talks down to coaches too much, and sees it as right. Well, um, I did this very narrow study, and actually that's what every coach everywhere should do. So I'm coming around to tell you how you should do it. mm Um. Going back to the question you've just asked about, well, uh, how, how do coaches navigate this world? I think it's very similar to how you might approach your coaching practice. There is no textbook anywhere that teaches you everything you need to know about coaching volleyball.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: What coaches need to be able to do is um, I think that there are lots. I think there are academic programs that can help, for example, MSc level study um, or even professional doctorate or that kind of thing that helps somebody navigate a breadth of literature. Um, I think there are increasing number of programs that might help a coach to be able to go, right, okay, I understand the conceptual basis of this. I can now take this knowledge and I can go and apply it more broadly. That is, I can sort of now see how I can read a paper. I know, uh, I can, I get, let's say, take a really simple learning idea like cognitive load theory. Right, okay, mm. I've got the genesis of this idea. I can see the difference, say, between working memory, long-term memory. Okay, now let's just play around with this now in practice, and it helps me read this paper and this paper and make sense of them. Um, I also think that there are some reasonably good textbooks knocking around that offer a decent uh, applied focus, and, um, and clearly I might plug one that's being written at the moment. Yeah, that's um, But, but um, I think that all of that kind of thing can help. But the bit I'd return to is: don't be afraid to read, don't be afraid to listen, and don't be afraid to go and try things. But openness and skepticism at the same time is the route I think that Mm -hmm. everybody needs to try and follow.
0: The and this kind of hits on our first topic, but the way I see the high the coaches who I see who are like you know treat the job as a profession, they work hard at it, they want to learn more they tend to be drawn to more of the pop coaching books uh, you know um, some of them that I've introduced you know ideas like myelin I don't want to throw anybody in the bus but um, do you see I mean I guess going through the first step the first topic I guess I could see some of the issues with that um, I guess do you have issue with that like sh- should we not be reading those sorts of more um, yeah I don't know the right phrasing of it but uh, like a a pop book versus a real academic research.
2: I think that pop books have a responsibility to offer high quality, robust knowledge. I think that people who have a platform and um, write popular things need to make need to be held to a high standard. Mm. Um, I think we're we're probably thinking about the same book where there's there's uh, there's dashes of uh, dashes of truth mixed in with some absolute nonsense, and um, and that's really I think there's some really dangerous uh, i say dangerous in that there's uh, bad ideas that can really poison right. the well for everybody right. and as a result um people have to be um, um have to hold themselves and each other to higher standards mm. um uh, i think it's a very difficult landscape to navigate in that regard
0: yeah yeah it's hard enough to get people to read now you're asking them to read not just the uh, page turners but um well your your article is a page turner so it's possible there's a way to write an academic article that uh is uh, accessible like we said so that's that's the uh the challenge um so you mentioned those you mentioned a couple of ways but i'm, I'm interested in other ways you've seen coaches maybe hone and work at and improve at their craft what what other ideas do you have for coaches so they can continue to grow
2: um i might just linger on the idea of reflection i think it's pro- the reflection against But it's reflection coupled with a knowledge base. I think that um, again, I see an artificial distinction between um, the uh, right coaches don't need knowledge, they just need practice, or coaches need knowledge and no practice. The coupling of those things and the application of new knowledge for me is uh, really where we should be putting our emphasis because um, I certainly don't see it as right uh, continued professional development is going on a course or the the current favorite is uh, i'm going to go to uh, this particular environment over here because it's they've got some nice shiny new buildings and i've heard about them on a podcast and i'll I'll copy everything that they do um a coach has got to choose multiple different ways to um uh, to acquire knowledge and then to winnow what's effective and not um and that's tied for fundamentally to me for identifying really clearly what is it I'm trying to do I've talked about this idea of technical change a few times right specifically what are we actually trying to do with this athlete what do we plan to do to help make the change and um, at a certain point in the future did we actually go ahead and make that change and um that to me is how we have we should be evaluating our practice and really thinking about um if I applied that under this specific set of circumstances that I find myself in here, why did that work? Why didn't that work? Um, okay, well, what could I, what else could I have done? And what conditions would have been different to make me choose that option? And for me, those are the fundamental questions that we have to be asking day by day, rather than seeing it as a um, separating knowledge acquisition from uh, from our coaching practice.
0: Do you think that that should be such so should be built in like post practice? You you sit down and journal that sort of stuff. Those those questions, or is that? Um, it just seems like that like you get so busy in coaching, stuff can slip away. I guess like like what systems would you build in to make sure that happens? Um,
2: I, I agree. I see that and this actually would be a, a, an error that I see coaches making is that reflecting on practice and really high quality planning beyond what time are we going to meet. Um uh, who's going to sort out the kits, number of balls we need for the practice? Right. Um, uh, that planning reflection cycle, I often see uh, being uh, dwarfed by um, procedural stuff an, an admin um, I, I think that however it's done, if you're going to get better, it needs to be done, and that can be lots of coaches do will we'll do it in their heads. lots of coaches don't you know don't need a pen and paper. Uh, I personally need conversation and pen and paper, um, or I'll use voice notes from time to time as well. Um, And I think that can be as simple as doing it on the way home or Mm. uh, calling your fellow coach on your drive home. Um, But it's structured reflection, not nice chit-chat, because nice chit-chat often turns into, oh, athlete so-and-so had a good day today, and that's not the territory that we want to be in.
0: I want to go into that a little bit more. So what were the questions again that you reflect on?
2: Uh, So I think there's multiple different frameworks. So I'm certainly not suggesting there's one because again, it depends on what you're trying to get out of it. A framework that I've used uh, recently is called the big five. Okay. And that goes, uh, it's a, it's a post reflection, but it draws on multiple different areas. So it's what just happened. It can be used uh, prospectively as well. You can say, what do you plan to do? But we'll we'll assume it's just happened. What just happened? Describe. uh, Why did that happen? Then you go, um, what other courses of action could you have taken? What context would be different to make you choose one of those courses of action? How will you know whether you made a good decision or not? Mm. Now, if you're going to reach that, what you've got is uh, recall, description of events, understanding the causes of what just happened. Uh, and we can get, I don't want to necessarily, I'm using that term loosely. We don't necessarily get into um, multi-causality and all of that. Then we go, um, what other course of action could you have taken? So you're then uh, maximizing what you get from this particular experience and consider a few others then you go, okay, well, if, if that had happened, I'd have chosen this option because of this or I'd have chosen this option because of this. Then how will I know where I've made a good decision is based on really clear, uh, really clear criteria. This is what I'm trying to do here. Now, if you're going to do that, you need the knowledge to be able to consider different courses of action. Uh, you need to have the real clarity of intention that uh, that helps you understand whether what uh, what a good decision might be not best decision good decision and as a result you've got a a really clear framework with which to reflect against
0: and would you go through that framework for like i mean it sounds like first identifying what happened i could see like oh first you talk about something in the warm-up and then you know, after you went through the f- the five, would would you ask it again about another part of practice? Like, are you doing that multiple times, or is that just more of a general like, what happened during the whole practice?
2: Um, it, no, I mean, look, it, there's if it, you, I don't think it works for a whole practice because there's mm-hmm. so many things going on. However, yeah. I think that in most in most sessions, you can probably identify two or three really key moments. Right, now, they might be key moments from your point of view of you know, here is a re- I have to get this bit done really well. Um, it might be that uh, I've got to ask this question when this happens, right? Let's really deep dive into that. Let's really explore how that happens, your tone, your pitch, um, your body positioning, um, why you're asking that question in the first place, where, did, where does it link to in the bigger picture? Um, I think it's better for smaller instances or blocks. If you're looking at the bigger picture of a session, you, I think that that requires a different reflective approach where you might ask somebody to go through, um, let's say, um, help me understand where this session fits into the bigger picture. Why, um, why are you adopting this uh, pedagogical approach? Why are you adopting? Uh, or you might say, right, um, talk, me your, um, talk me through your long-term plan here. What were your intentions for the session? Um, what, uh, what did your learning design look like? How did uh, how did your coaching approach? How did you adopt that? And then, what do you think was going on for uh, the, the the athletes here? What was going on for this athlete at that moment? You know, there's there, there's so many avenues you can explore.
0: Hmm. And I, I don't know if you might if you're comfortable sharing, but have you found like in your own coaching when you go through this a similar sort of area comes up or a similar theme? Um, if there, I don't know if there is one. Would you Would you be up for like sharing like what you're currently working on?
2: Uh, yeah, so I can share what I'm currently working on. I think that um, it, it probably, it's Probably there's a reflection as well of the, the breadth of sports that I, I work with. That I think you might see similar themes coming up in particular sports, um, because of the the cultural impact of how coaching is done. We t- we obviously tend to do things in a particular way. Will tend to use particular language in a, in a certain sport, um, but it, so if I share uh, so i I'm, I'm working very hard at the moment with a, um, a team sport uh, on learning design. Um, I use that framing deliberately because it's a lot more than what happens um, on the pitch, on the court. It's what happens around it. Um, how do you, uh, how do you organise um, pre and post session reflection? How do you help a player think about their uh, their, individual, uh, their individual development points? Um, and I think that all of that then goes into the into the bucket of learning design rather than just, right, I'm going to use this particular practice for this particular purpose.
1: Good stuff. Well, John, my club team practice is really late at night, so you're going to get some late phone calls to, to reflect and debrief on my way Let's home.
0: Let's do it. I would love yeah. it. That would yeah. make me better. I, I think... <laughs> I'd love to be in those conversations.
1: Uh, Jamie, I guess just narrowing down to the coaches you work with, um, are there any skills or character that really separates, I guess, your, your good coach from your elite coach that's a little further down the road? Um,
2: I think I, I would again return back to uh, how, coaches, uh, how coaches reflect and how they use the experiences they've had. Uh, I think that people often—I uh, um, don't want to—you know—it's it's certainly not my idea, and it's certainly not my quote, but the idea that you can uh, you can coach for ten years and you can coach the the same year ten times—I think is very relevant. And I think that you see—I th- certainly see—you I think you see a growing generation of younger coaches who, particularly uh, in a couple of sports that I work with, that have have been able to use their experience incredibly well. Uh, and as a result of really accelerated uh, their development. Um, and that to me is a really key characteristic is absolutely maximizing what you get from a particular experience and then being able to use it to inform what you do in the future. Again, all of that, depending on uh, your ability to use your knowledge base and apply
0: and it. I know you, I've seen, I've seen the word thrown out of a pracademic. Could you, could you explain... What that term is, and um, yeah, I guess why is that? Uh, why is that? What's the value in in coming from that kind of viewpoint?
2: And look, it, it's also in in academia. I don't think it's a particular popular term. People don't like it very much, um, mm. and it certainly spans more than sports mm-hmm. because all it is, it represents somebody who's got a foot in practice and a foot in academia, mm-hmm. um, uh, and I suppose. I don't think it's particularly well liked in, in the in the academic in the academic world because people often see it as, uh, well, um, we do real world, um, we're in the real real world. Now, uh, certainly, again, I hope I'm not. Uh, I have to really try and labour the point that I don't want to tar everybody with the same brush. Um, the reason why I like it and the reason why I use it is that I've deliberately set my life up in a way that I have got a foot in both. Uh, in, in on both sides my research is very practically applied i am more interested in in um, the cash value of knowledge that is if i know this what difference does it make Than i am in knowledge generation for the sake of it that to me is what a academic is
1: and do you believe coaches should have a more academic background in their field i think that's uh crucial crucial no
2: um and I think it often depends on what the nature of I'd, I'd say see it instead of necessarily academic um i don't think that's i think coaches often use that as a as a negative term a pejorative term i don't see it as that um i think it dep- it all it for me is uh, the a deeper knowledge base that helps coaches um do better at practice now if the root to that is forty years of uh, testing trying. Um, Or whether it's doing some simple things like uh, uh, developing, uh, uh, doing uh, appropriate qualifications alongside your coaching practice. You know, I I, I don't necessarily see an an, an either or. I would say I really like a a quote by James Mattis that goes along the lines of um, only an idiot learns from experience because I can read and find out about the experiences of others and then use those to shape my own. clearly i'm paraphrasing a bit that um that to me is the essence of it if academe offers that yes i do think that coaches should be engaging in it um if it doesn't offer that well no hmm.
0: yeah that's great i think it goes into what you'd mentioned just the idea of respecting the profession um and putting in the, you know, the honoring it, I guess, by putting in the the work, it, both uh, in your studies and, and and in your, you know, out on the field too. Um, I I wish, uh, you know, in my university experience, there was more opportunity for it. You know, it doesn't even, I think it goes into like, it's not treated like a profession because at least at my university, there wasn't like, there was an opportunity for um, motor learning or, or, classes uh in the coaching field so um I've had to learn by doing this podcast and talking to smart people like you all right so we're gonna we're gonna open up a topic that we've been diving into a lot over the last uh, actually the person who introduced me to you is Casey Kreider and he's the one who really brought us into the world of ecological dynamics Uh, previously was only I only knew of one form of motor learning or I, I thought motor learning was one thing which was the informational processing approach um, I don't even think I knew that word informational processing. I just knew motor learning and blocked versus random and specificity and um, some of the basics. Um, and then now it's been fun to learn kind of this this other worldview and this other approach. And I've I've dove into it. Um, and my understanding, you you come from a more informational processing view and of learning. Um, and I love the skepticism you bring to everything, and I love your your framing. So I'd love to just hear. Because uh, I'm sure you have an understanding of both, I know sides isn't the right word, but both maybe approaches. Um, so I'm curious to see first, I guess, why you um, lean towards that informational processing view, if that's true.
2: Well, uh, well look, first of all, um, I, I caveat what I'm going to say by this is not, I'm not a specialist in this area. This area is me speaking as a coach, coach developer. I'm not published in the area of motor learning. Um, I've got a couple of pieces on the way that relate to uh, what we're discussing, but I'm just, I'll start by saying a second bit. Um, I suppose um, I've been exposed to a range of different ideas in my coach development. Um, and uh, I've, I've been introduced to uh, ecological dynamics as an idea. Uh, that is, uh, and there's a nuance there as well, because I think there's, there's for example, the complex systems uh, components dynamical systems component of ecological dynamics I think offers a lot I think it offers some really interesting ideas Um, I wouldn't characterize myself as being um, coming from an uh, information processing perspective because but I think we've got to really be clear on what we're talking about because I think there's there's way too many um, artificial dichotomies in this area that have almost been set up as a it's this or it's that um, and I think that a lot of the literature is actually really struggling with this now because you're seeing different versions of uh, ecological dynamics that are being represented. Um, so there's there's a really interesting um, practical piece that's been written about the blend of constru- uh, constructivism and ecological dynamics um, applied as two different uh, pedagogical ideas. Uh, now, depending on who you read, well, that 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 doesn't that's not possible. Uh, that's not coherent. I think for me as a practical coach, where I put a cash value on what makes a difference in practice, that's what led me to be very, very sceptical of some of the ideas that probably more so emanate from ecological psychology. Now, if I'm going to sum up uh, in uh, in reasonably simple terms what I perceive as the differences uh, between ecological psychology and more uh, representational views of human functioning, uh, I'm using that term deliberately, it is the idea of representations, whether they are mental representations, neural representations, or any other form uh, uh, of representations. Now, what these representations offer us um, is an opportunity to, uh, to, not, uh, to not live in a world of uh, perception, action, that um, uh, our cognitions, our uh, our brain, our central nervous system, uh, impacts on what we see, how we see, how we act, um, and therefore um, representations offer an enormous amount, both to the coach um, and also if you look at the mainstream neuroscience, I think we've moved quite a long way beyond uh, this artificial dichotomy. Um, I'd encourage anybody to go and look at the work of Carl Friston in active inference, in predictive processing. Um, but if you look at the mainstream lit, um, this is a debate that was happening 30 years ago and has crept into coaching. And we now are, we're now not using what mainstream literature offers us because we're stuck in this, uh, this artificial dichotomy. Um, and I really think we've got to go beyond this I also think in some ways what this uh, what the divide is is actually not a, um, a split between uh, we'll call it information processing now and uh, EcoD. I think it's more a pedagogical thing because uh, I see um, EcoD representing uh, ideas. And I see the idea of contemporary pedagogy being used. Now, there's nothing that irritates me more than seeing contemporary pedagogy when um, uh, I've had multiple chats with uh, with Rod Thorpe, who was uh, one of the, uh, who came up with the idea of teaching game for understanding, and we're going back decades now. I often see a representation of um, behaviorism as an idea, as underpinning uh, drills and do it over and over again, and we'll, we'll, that's the way that we form our actions. Now. Uh, That's not what cognitivism would suggest, and I find it very difficult to see that the idea of, say, desirable difficulty of random practice, of uh, interleaving in practice, all of those ideas coming from the cognitive domain but being ignored because we want to say, right, this idea represents nonlinear pedagogy or any of the associated ideas represents this. So I think what we're probably talking about in lots of ways is a split, perhaps, between a multi-pedagogical uh, idea, a la um, Moss and Ashworth teaching styles, when compared to a more progressivist or um, uh, or progressive pedagogy. And I think that there's lots of nuance here that you can get into, but as a starting point, um, I would describe myself as holding a representational account of human functioning. I see lots of very good explanations for that, Um, and uh, I think that we need to be using multiple methods in our coaching and not subscribing to one pedagogical view.
0: Mm. Well, you say you're not an expert. Well, we're you know we're far from it. So um, I I don't even know if I'm qualified to try to talk to discuss it um, deeper. But just could you help? I think you were saying like a mental representation seems a more accurate um, description than like perception action. Is that could, is that is that true? And and how would that be? Or could you maybe take that into like a real world example?
2: Okay, so um, I'm deliberately using the term representation rather than just mental representation because there's a lot of a lot of debate in the mainstream literature about what a representation is. So I'm just going to refer to it as representation. That is, um, there are, uh, we'll call it neural correlates. That is, there is something going on before action that influence action. Um, that we might hold uh, representations in our head. I again use that deliberately because held in our brain. That, uh, that help uh, influence what we see, help us infer different things based on the contents of these representations. And take uh, and predict what will happen.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, active inference, as a concept, would suggest that uh, we both perceive uh, perceive uh, to act and act to perceive. Now, I know that's a a more um, there's that's certainly not just an, an idea from active inference, but that representations moderate how that happens. If I'm summing up in really simple terms, the way that I see this is that it's a two-way process. Um, we don't uh, we see the world uh, as we might predict it to be, and uh, the world influences and changes the way that we see it. Practical idea now. Sorry, I'll stop. <laughs> do we want to gen- Do we want to generate understanding um, and an idea of say? Um, formations and how we might play based on if an opponent does X to us.
0: Mm-hmm. And forgive me, we never worked in volleyball. No, take us to rugby. We can we can do it.
2: Um, rugby is often an edge case. A reason rugby is an edge case is because okay. lots of there's lots of elements of rugby that are more like say uh, American football or yeah. than other oh, sports. Yeah, or it's
0: like a predetermined play. Yeah, predetermined uh, plays. How about mi- uh, football, soccer?
2: Okay, so. Uh, We might play a particular formation, and we know that if our opponents play, uh, let's say, 3-5-2 against us, we're going to make a change to go to this formation. We know that uh, their left winger is really poor when she's forced onto her right foot. So this is how we're going to set up, and we're going to force her to her inside. We therefore have a, we can call it, mental model representation. Mm -hmm schema, whatever you like. We have mm-hmm. a shared uh, shared understanding of what we're trying to do in this game and that then influences how we act. It helps us coordinate what we do.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, depending on uh, what corner of, uh, eco- of the ecological dynamics landscape you're in currently, that is either uh, complete blasphemy or a sensible idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't see a way... In coaching, that we can avoid developing understanding and developing shared understanding. Um, I, I also see significant value in talking about it, showing it on a screen, building understanding, and then going out and doing it on pitch course. Mm-hmm. That to me is a really significant difference between perspectives yeah. Yeah. and a really significant practical difference between perspectives before we get into where again where the mainstream literature is which is we've moved beyond this now
0: Mm -hmm. so yeah i could see that from the tactics how there is a benefit to um, having a plan studying what we want to make them do Um, obviously i guess with either way if you have a representation or if you're perceiving and acting there's still going to be a lot of adaptability and um randomness that occurs within it that you have to adjust to and um but i guess that still fits into does that still fit into a representative sort of approach like with this if we've already decided yeah. kind of what we're going to do
2: oh completely and this is where i see shared mental models as an idea and by the way this is broader than shared mental models um this is where i see the idea being misrepresented because it's uh, right you do this and here's your plan and you must stick to it when mm-hmm. Every bit of literature in that idea, uh, in that area supports the idea that it helps. It supports adaptive decision making. Mm. It helps us understand what our roles are. It understand it helps us understand what our tasks are. And if one of us shouts a a particular keyword word, that means we change formation. We all know what that means, and we know how to do it. But we also know why we're doing it based on what our opponents are doing.
0: Mm-hmm. No, I could see that. In tactics. Now I'm curious from maybe a um more of a movement solution you're trying to help the athlete develop. It seems like your perspective, like there it seems like there would be more of a dichotomy. I mean, tell me where I'm wrong. Um, this is again pretty over my head, but I'm picturing if you're taking more of maybe that mental model informational processing approach, and even just like you talked about pedagogies, like the linear, like I've decided for I don't know, for soccer, I don't know anything about soccer or football. Where, um, you know, I know their left foot has to plant here and, you know, we're going to tell them to plant there and this is the way to do it. That seems very different than this idea of self-organization, where um, we're going to let them explore the landscape and try to discover, you know, where that left foot should be. It just seems like such like that's where, like, to me, the dichotomy comes in. Like if you if you as a coach, you know, view the world more that way, or the evidence takes us that way, then you would you would set up the activity, or you set up the the coaching in a very, um, yeah, a very different manner based on on the two. Um, yeah, I don't know if that and, makes any sense.
2: <laughs> no, no, it completely does. Uh, that's where I see a problem that I, I see uh, this artificial dichotomy mm. because. Um, let's say you go to uh, Moss and Ashworth underformed by a more cognitivist perspective on teaching Um, there's discovery learning, there's guided discovery Um, there's a whole different range of different ways in which you might teach somebody to do something based on the circumstances Um, at no point have I seen uh, Right, we're going to break this down step by step, Uh, sorry, rephrase that At no point have I seen this is the only way you are allowed to do this, which is put your left foot here, do this, do that. However, we've got to consider a few matters of practicality as well, which is at some points there is an appropriate movement solution within a bandwidth of of norms. Now, for you as a coach, uh, I would suggest that you are in dereliction dereliction of your duty if you allow somebody to do something unsafely or you allow somebody to uh, explore the the uh, affordance landscape um, without eventually going. Look, we, we've there's enough time for exploring because you're going to drop out of this sport unless we help you do it differently soon. Right, now, I that's know, what, like a constraint know, would come in. Yeah, exactly. Right. Now, um, but why would you? Why? Why? I don't. I don't see any evidence anywhere that would support the idea that you uh, that uh, providing cues. Or even te- telling somebody how to do something leads to a suboptimal uh, solution. Right. Um, nor do I see any literature in um, from representational accounts that suggests that that's all, all the only way that you should do it. Mm-hmm. And again, this is where I struggle with the, the idea of linear and nonlinear pedagogy because I, don't, I I can't ever remember seeing linear pedagogy anywhere. Mm.
3: Um, so there, depending no on dichotomy. depending
2: what, uh to me yes and that's yeah. why I think we're talking that's why I think we're it's a pedagogical debate
3: mm.
2: as separate to a um to a human functioning debate uh, and um, and that's where we've got to radically rethink things because uh, from a human functioning perspective I think that mainstream has moved on moved on 10, 15 years ago and um, what's uh, and as a result. Uh, But I I don't actually necessarily think the pedagogical um, implications of what's happening in the mainstream literature make um, any particular changes to practical recommendations. But I do see a big difference when it comes to development of tactics. And if it is, as I see it represented, as it's an all-in or nothing, if you believe this, this is the pedagogy you have to use I'm practically going, I'm really not sold on this.
1: Jamie, in your practice, um, when it comes to like your own team, if you're trying to develop a skill, is there a time where you do use more of an eco or a constraint led approach than like just an informational one? And uh, I guess, why would you choose that over the other one based on that, like learning that one skill?
2: So I'd really hammer in the idea that there isn't an ecod, there isn't an information processing approach. To pedagogy, it's multi-method. Um, I'm a pragmatist. I do what 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 works. Um, now you might say, well, I need to have a uh, I need to have a, a conceptual underpinning uh, to that. So I need to understand what underpins my actions. I need to have my why, and my why is representational accounts, which is different to information processing. Would I use a more direct pedagogical approach to teach skill? Yes, absolutely I would. Particularly in rugby, tackling safety is a massive, massive thing. Exposing somebody to uh, a chaotic uh, game-like environment, um, whether they're a beginner or indeed somebody who is um, a more senior player, is uh, is malpractice. Um, Concussion is a major issue in our sport. Tackle technique is um, a very underdone element of our sport, and if you practice tackle technique badly, people get hurt and people get hurt badly. Um, so yes.
1: And is is there any time where you'd swing the perceived other way and let them, um, I guess, explore solutions more on their own in your own practice?
2: Oh, completely. Yes, and I think it's really important to do that.
0: How, how would you explain the the effects of something like differential learning, like which seems so, yeah, this like random, I mean, I don't know if anybody can explain the effects of differential learning, but <laughs> under like the under the mental representation kind of view, again, I'm this is way over my head, but it seems like those effects of of people um, finding more effective, movement solutions uh wouldn't fit very well in a mental representation view is that yeah yeah what's your take on that
2: um so i'm personally on a practical level i'm not that sold on differential learning Uh, i I, I see the papers uh, i see how it's applied to specific domains practically not that sold on it i think you can apply the same question however to highly randomized practice Um, and I think you've seen um, highly randomised practice being explained by cognitivists for 30 years um, based on the effects, uh, based on... Um, I think there's some really interesting recent work that's looked at subtle differences between uh, movement efficiency and movement effectiveness based on uh, different randomization and different variability scheduling. Uh, I think there's a long way to go there, but um, I think it fits. Uh, I don't see any, uh, any particular... Uh, difficulty in explaining that because by doing it you're um, let's say uh, let's take a method in coaching like old way new way by doing something if you're trying to make a technical change you're doing it in, a, in, a, in an old fashion and then the technically desirable fashion you're um, clearly making a distinction between those two movements and adjusting a representation accordingly um, I, I don't see uh, an issue there at all
0: i'm curious sorry i was on mute but i'm curious um you said you don't um you've seen some of the evidence or you've seen some of the studies on on differential learning but you aren't it sounds like not quite bought in but i don't know what i've seen it's like wolfgang schulhorn it seems like they're uh i mean he's got his control group he's got his group getting prescriptive or even rob gray has some studies where there's a differential learning group there's a you know, more prescriptive group or constraints group, and it, it shows an effect. So, like, where does that skepticism come from? And why aren't you sold on it?
2: So, without commenting on specific papers, what I'd encourage everybody to do is look at the protocol for prescriptive um, coaching approaches and consider whether anybody would ever coach in that manner. And then consider whether it's an appropriate control.
1: So, it's like they use a straw man, a really bad example of the informational processing.
2: Again, without wanting to comment on individual papers, I would suggest that that's a really important bit of deciding, well, is this more effective? It's also then therefore applicable in different contexts where uh, it depends on what you're trying to achieve and depends on the context, depends on much time you have. Um, and let's say particularly in my sports, um, there are, I don't know, nine highly distinct roles out of 15. Whereas in football, there are probably um, three highly distinct roles with variability amongst those three. And again, there's practical matters to take into consideration in your approach and how much time you've got as well.
0: Hmm. That's going be really cool to see. I know I guess you're not necessarily in the motor learning f- field, but um, yeah, to like have someone like you do a study alongside um i don't know carl woods or uh rob gray where you're the one working with the the group who's getting you know the prescriptive instruction and they're the one working with i I, I don't know i guess that maybe messes up the the research but um yeah it just feels like the the studies i see it's um if you're coming from a more informational processing approach you know you do the study if you're coming from ecological approach you study and you get the results you want to find and i'm not saying they're um skewing the research i think they're um doing it in good faith uh, but it'd be cool to see academics come together and work together on something like that
2: yeah and if um if somebody fancied that then uh, then i'd be up for it if, all right we got um, it here
0: it, we're gonna set it up
2: <laughs> but again that's where i'd refer to that idea of um I think that because there's such a there's there's been such a a buildup of false dichotomies, that's often what's perceived, and also that uh, having a foot in both camps. As look, um, that's where I think that things get lost in translation often.
0: It was fun to to follow along with that, and I'm sure we could spend another couple hours, but we've taken so much of your time. I'd love to uh, hear you discuss some of these ideas with. Um, someone who has a deeper understanding than me um be cool to hear you on dr gray's podcast and have you guys chat it out have a real high level uh conversation um but i appreciate you um you know handling our (laughs) our questions and taking them on and being so patient and uh this was really fun really good for us so thank you
2: yeah pleasure both thank you thank you very much